Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Mass Office Hours. We are live. Uh, the date is December 20th here. We're on our 15th episode of Mass Office Hours. I'm here with the good doctor, Mike Zordos. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on tonight. I'm excited to chat. Definitely. Uh, before we get into all of our stuff tonight, I do want to mention something. Uh, social media was buzzing a little bit today. I saw a lot of people posting about a new study. Uh, there was a study by Jorn Tromelin and colleagues. They found that the ingestion of 100 grams of protein results in a greater and more prolonged anabolic response when compared to the ingestion of 25 grams of protein. So the reason that this got a lot of attention on social media today is because a lot of folks have been saying for a long time, once you get to like, you know, maybe 30, 40 grams of protein in a meal, in a meal, you've maxed out the kind of anabolic capacity of that meal. So this study challenges that by looking at some muscle protein synthesis responses. The reason I bring it up now is not to do a 40 minute summary of the study. Uh, to, to the best of my knowledge, I think it just came out today, or at least today, everyone started sharing it everywhere. I or someone will be covering it in the February 1st issue of the Mass Research Review. I feel pretty confident uh, saying that. We haven't discussed it as a group, but I'm making an executive decision. Uh, if I don't write about it, somebody will, but it'll probably be me. Um, but if you've been been reading Mass for a while, then you probably aren't super surprised by that because I've been doing a lot of content about protein distribution, meal frequency, and muscle protein synthesis measurements as a whole. So, um, a lot of folks have been asking if we're going to cover that. We will, but it'll take some time. We've already written our articles that are going to be published January 1st, so that'll be in the February 1st uh, issue of Mass. Uh, before we get into the good stuff, if you like the show, you know how to support it. Like, rate, subscribe, review, all that good stuff. Share it. Tell a friend. Send them a link to our YouTube, our Spotify, our Apple podcast page. If you want to participate and literally make the show better, you could submit a really good question. You can do that using the link in the description of this uh, YouTube video. You can also, uh, and I guess wherever you're listening, it'll be in the description, but you can also join us live. That is the preferred, the best way uh, to participate in the show here. Jump in live. We go live Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time, and you can jump in the chat and ask us a question. And uh, yeah, we appreciate the support any way you can do it. The final thing I want to mention is, uh, you know, Mike, I might tag you in here. You are the CEU expert. I want to make one more announcement here that Mass has CEUs available and they are very, very affordable and convenient. So Mike, you want to give a little uh, little update on the CEUs that we have? Yeah, I do. Um, yes, CEUs are continuing education or CECs continuing education credits. Uh, we offer these for four organizations and coming up on the end of the year here is the time to recertify and all four organizations, the NSCA national strength and conditioning association, ACSM American college of sports medicine, ACE uh, American council on exercise and NASM uh, national academy of sports medicine. Uh, all those organizations require you to recertify at the end of 2023. And we have CUs for all of them. For the NSCA, we offer two courses. Uh, those courses are in category C, which is the home study course. One course is for 2.0 CEUs. The other is for 1.8 CEUs. The courses are issues of mass, which we have for you, followed by some quizzes. The National Academy of Sports Medicine, NASM, we have a 
uh, course there that is worth 1.9 CEUs. That actually gets you all the CEUs you need in addition to having your CPR certification. Uh, for ACSM, we offer uh, one course for 18 CECs, continuing education credits. And for ACE, we offer one course for 1.8 uh, CEUs, continuing education units. Uh, we're excited to do that. They're on a website. They come free with your subscription. Um, so we're uh, a pretty good bet there for CEUs. Uh, we're honored that these organizations have approved our uh, our courses. Uh, we spend a lot of time working on them, working on those quizzes to, to go with the courses. So if you're interested in those, you can go ahead and um, you know subscribe to Mass for $29 a month. And if you uh, are certified by multiple of these organizations, um, all of them come with it. Uh, just one subscription, get continuing education units for all of those. If you have questions about that, uh, you can email uh, at support at massresearchreview.com. And uh, I'll say in all likelihood, I'll say 100% chance you'll get a response from me and uh, I'll let you know all you need to know about them. So great bet. Perfect. Yeah. And, and for folks who are not uh, familiar with the CEU CEC game, it's a tough game. A lot of times to, to meet all your requirements, you end up going to some kind of workshop where you have to drive a couple hours and spend like 150 bucks or, or sometimes substantially more on your admission to that event. Uh, way better to just read some great articles in mass and answer some questions about them. Way, way easier and a lot more affordable. Yeah. All right, um, Mike, we need to get into the fitness stuff. Uh, we've oh. basically been uh, glorified salespeople for the last four minutes. So uh, question number one, Right to the point, what are your thoughts about warming up? Uh, is it effective? Is it useful? Is it optional? What do you think? So the straightforward answer, what do I think is I think, yes, it's effective. The benefit is probably small, but it's effective. But the... And the uh, sorry, I don't, I don't want to cut you off there. When you say effective, I, I should clarify. The question has two parts, talking about decreasing risk of injury and also increasing performance. So when you say effective, are you referring to one or the other or both? Let's let's start with performance because okay. I think although performance isn't as strong as an effect or as effective as people might perceive it to be, it's still overall effective, I believe. Injury prevention, I think it's pretty murky on what we can conclude from that. So you know, oftentimes we have these questions and we have these concepts that we think are very obvious, right? Should you warm up before exercise? Of course. Like, who's going to say no to that, right? Very few people would say no to that. Um, now, it, it's similar to this, and I'll get back to this type of warm up in a moment. But anytime you see a movie or a TV show, and somebody alludes to the fact that, hey, they got to go to this practice or this game or whatever. They say, oh, you know, better get your stretching in or they cut to a, a shot of that person, you know, bending over, touching their toes or, you know, whatever, whatever it might Twisting be. Twisting the trunk around a little bit. Getting Twisting the trunk. Yeah. As a, there's an old, old Seinfeld episode where he puts on these 1980 sweats and does a sprints against his high school guy. Of course, they're stretching out there, you know, yeah. doing their doing their thing. And, um, and so, you know, it's kind of one of those topics that we all just kind of assume we should do this. Now, when we talk about warm up in the literature, it's not just enough to say warm up because I want to specify the most common types of warm up. There's a specific warm up, which would be if you're going to 
let's say, do a max bench press, the most specific thing you can do is warm up with lighter loads on the bench press. And unequivocally, you should do that. Then there is static stretching, dynamic stretching, and foam rolling. So overall, let's take static stretching first out of static stretching, dynamic stretching, and foam rolling. So static stretching started to come under fire as a warm-up about 20 years ago. And from a static stretching perspective, if you were to nail me down and say, should you static stretch before lifting weights or before exercise of any kind, and I had to give a yes or no answer, I would say, no, you shouldn't. But the issue with that is, and what happens with static stretching in a warm-up is when you stretch a muscle and hold it, you are having something called the stress relaxation, where you're lengthening acutely the length that the muscle is held at. So when you use the stretch reflex, which is, let's say, you can bench press more by doing the eccentric first than just by bringing the bar down to your chest and just holding it there and starting with it. The stretch reflex is that recoil out of the bottom of the eccentric. So it's like the difference between doing a, a regular squat versus squatting from pins, right? Much easier to do a regular squat. Exactly like that. And, uh, so when you, when you stretch and hold the muscle and it's held at a longer length, that recoil, when you stretch it out after the eccentric, isn't as strong. It doesn't come back to that same length and your, that stress relaxation decreases force production. So you think of it like a rubber band. If you have a rubber band, you stretch it out, let it go. It's going to snap back. I take it. I attach it to the ends of this desk that I'm sitting at overnight. I come back in the morning, I take it off, it's kind of lost its elastic properties. And so that's what happens acutely when you do static stretching. And so it's going to decrease force production. So I would say, no, I would tend to lean against that. But why that's been overblown is because the original studies that looked at it used really, really long stretches. Specifically, there's a study from Fowles in 2000 that looked at plantar flexion strength. And in that study, they held the stretches for up to 135 seconds. There's been other studies looking at sprint performance, holding, holding stretches for maybe 30 seconds at a time, showing decreases in sprint performance. However, when static stretches are held for 10 seconds or less, the difference in performance seems to be negligible or non-existent. The point being, those studies that hold stretches for a really, really long time, they were some of the first ones done in the area. So they're there to show the concept, to show the point. Does static stretching cause this negative acute physiological effect? The answer is it can, but it's most likely not going to, at least not to that degree in a normal setting. So if you like static stretching, I don't think it's going to improve your performance, but if you enjoy doing it and you're holding that stretch for a very short period of time, it's probably not a big deal. So that's warm up number one. Do you need to avoid static stretching at all costs? No, you just need to minimize the dosage. So it's not going to affect that, but that's only acute. Chronic static stretching is a good thing, but that's a different concept. So then we get to foam rolling. Foam rolling, one of the other common types of warmups, foam rolling actually wrote about in the January issue, does seem to improve recovery for a small benefit, but does not seem to improve performance. And we seem to have enough data on that now where I can pretty comfortably say that if you foam roll before exercise, you're going to increase range of motion, but it's probably not going to improve performance. It probably won't have a negative effect on performance either. So if it's one of those things that you enjoy doing, or you have a range of motion deficit, perhaps some foam rolling and some short duration static stretching could help with that range of motion deficit. 
the meat of this discussion, I would say, is around dynamic stretching, because that is the one that I think some years ago, and this is dynamic stretching is actually the first um, data collection that I was ever a part of uh, in, in research back in about 2008. And um, this is the, the modality of warming up that I think people latched onto many, many years ago and said, well, this is obvious. It's a bit more specific. It's going to increase core temperature a little bit. That's probably a good thing for resistance training, maybe not for aerobic exercise, uh, but for resistance training performance, maybe increased core temperature. And it's not going to have that negative effect that static stretching does physiologically on the muscle. However, the benefits for dynamic stretching and specifically strength performance are pretty underwhelming. There's an older review now from BEM in 2016 that shows, I believe, about a 1.1% increase in performance with dynamic stretching across the board. That's pretty small for strength performance. Um, it tends to be positive uh, as long as the dynamic stretching isn't too uh, intense and doesn't last for too long where it's actually fatiguing you. So if you pick five, six exercises uh, and you do maybe eight to 10 reps on each, you should be good to go. You're reaching the stretch position, but you're not holding it, which would be kind of the definition there of dynamic stretching. Is this something you have to do? I'd say it's not something you have to do. The performance benefit isn't that huge. The one thing you have to do is the specific warm up. If you're going to max squat, you have to squat. If you're going to max bench press, you have to warm up on the bench press or whatever the exercise is that you're doing. So I'd say from a performance perspective, there are things that you want to stay away from, the really high dosages of static stretching. Foam rolling is okay. You can, you cannot. It's not a huge deal either way. If you have a range of motion deficit or a physical therapist recommends it, go for it. Dynamic stretching, I would probably do. But because the benefit is small, keep in mind the time efficiency. Five minutes or so, you don't need to be in there doing these 20-minute long warm-ups, then get into the specific warm-up. There is evidence for the specific warm-up, and you'll be good to go. Before I move on to the injury prevention stuff, Trex, do you have any follow-ups on that uh, long-winded answer? Not at all. I, I think you laid it out pretty clearly. I think you gave people a good overview of the literature. But I think the injury one, uh, like you said, that's where things get murky and that's where a lot of arguments happen. So I'm in interested to hear what you have to say there. Yeah. I, well, the um, before I get into that, I'm, I'm going to do this to you and I, I'm going to say I feel bad about it, but I don't because... You know, I was on with um, who I consider the real host, and uh, she's hashtag Zordos Nation in the chat. Um, and so, I gotta, I gotta take that and you know cast my vote for Lauren to come back and take over once more in the future, as as she did last time. So, um, I appreciate that, and uh, hopefully, we'll get another another dual episode there. Yeah, we uh, do. I don't want to cut you off there, but we do have someone chiming in with Trex Nation, Trex Army, and Trex Topia which is actually a new one. Trex Hive showed up recently, but Trextopia, that's brand new. So is, is that like when you overdose on Utopia and then you just, you know, uh, too much? It's, it's like four servings a day. No, that that, one, that wouldn't happen. Utopia is a great product made by it great, is a great people. Product. No, yeah. no overdoses that have been documented. Got to get the legal team uh, <laughs> appeased. I'm texting Ben right now. Yeah. Uh, and so on the injury prevention uh, uh, portion of this, there's far less evidence to support injury prevention. And I think this is so interesting because 
This is one of those things that even though there isn't very, very clear evidence you can point to, and I think this is something that'd be very difficult to study, but something that you can point to and say, this study definitively shows for resistance training performance and longevity, warming up uh, uh, is going to mitigate injury risk. I don't know anybody who would say warming up isn't a good idea. You know, it's one of those things and 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 maybe maybe check me on my scientific foundations here if I need it. But I, I would still tend to say that, yes, warming up is probably good for injury prevention. But let me read a quote here. Um, when I saw this, I, I wanted to get at a few papers that I was familiar with. And I want to read a quote here that uh, from a, a systematic review that looked at the effects of warming up on the lower body injury uh, in basketball players. And I think this is important because, you know, basketball is a sport where there's a lot of cutting and ACL tears and landing and things like that. And if you've seen some gruesome injuries in sports, a lot of them come from basketball, American football as well, but you see a lot of basketball. And the quote is, there were only 13 studies and something where we would think no question warming up is beneficial to reduce injury risk. Overall, the evidence is supportive of neuromuscular warmups for lower extremity injury prevention among basketball players. However, most studies are underpowered. Some use lower quality research study designs and outcome and exposure definitions varied. Due to the nature of the study designs, effects could not be attributed to specific intervention components. More research is needed to identify the most effective bundle of warm-up activities. What that says to me is they're kind of saying what I'm saying, which is, yes, this, this is a good idea, but we can't really pinpoint down and say, here's exactly what you should do. Here's the warm-up that's preventing that injury. And if we think about this, you need really large populations to study this. If you have 10 people do this program and 10 people do this program, and it's the same thing, and one group warms up before their training and one group doesn't, and two people in the no warm-up group get injured and nobody in the other group gets injured, that is not any evidence at all to say that warming up protected against injury. So I'd say yes, but the evidence is just not overwhelming to support it. And I think in large part because it's difficult to study. Yeah. And, and another thing is like, man, injury in sport or exercise takes so many different forms, right? I mean, you've got your kind of classic overuse injuries. Um, you, you've got the kind of fluky, you know, fairly random injuries that occur. I mean, if you watch football, like you'll, you'll see these guys uh, who, you know, the same plant that they do a million times a game when they're about to change direction and sprint, their Achilles tendon snaps, right? Uh, or they step a little bit weird, their ACL tears. But then you've got, you know, baseball pitchers who are thrown and thrown and thrown and they get inflammation in the elbow. They get their rotator cuff acting up. I mean, injury is such a broad thing when it comes to sport and, and these, um, the causative mechanisms driving these injuries are so different in nature that, uh, that just muddies the water even more. Um, my personal two cents, I didn't consult as many studies as you did in my preparation, Mike, but, uh, feeling good is usually nice. Uh, and I know if I just was going to do a one rep max on the bench, I probably would do some lighter sets before I hit that, that one rep max, um, because it would feel nicer. And, and I don't think it would feel very good to just kind of drag my feet into the gym and put a max load on the bar and, and, uh, you know, watch it, uh, split my chest in half <laughs> essentially. So, 
Uh, what's good for, for, for performance in that, in that respect is probably also not too terrible, uh, in terms of, you know, keeping your shoulders happy, keeping your pecs happy, things like that. So, um, yeah, I, I wish the literature here were more clear, but I would say that as someone who's also interested in actually doing the thing and coaching people, you can use a little bit of your intuition and experience and say, you know, it, if we feel like a warm up is, is kind of getting us in a better spot to, to have more confidence and, and to do this training or this uh, competition uh, more comfortably, then there, there's really not a lot of downside uh, uh, aside from spending five or 10 extra minutes, right? Yeah, it's it's pretty time efficient as long as you keep it to that. You know, that that's the thing with a lot of a lot of things that offer a small benefit. I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in optimizing it that we end up spending too much time on it where the opportunity cost is we take away from this. So if you have 90 minutes to train and then you say, all right, I'm going to warm up for 20 minutes, barring some sort of injury that you have that your physical therapist has given you this warm up to alleviate that pain before you go in, you should of course do that. Now you're spending 20 minutes on this warm up. That's a bit too much time. Yeah. Um, that for the benefit, you know, I've talked about recovery modalities before and they might offer a small benefit, but if you're just constantly, you know, using them and looking for the latest and greatest recovery modality for this much benefit, is that really time well spent? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, today I walked into the gym, back was feeling a little bit tight. I think my warm up maybe was two minutes, possibly three, uh, and it was totally sufficient. So yeah, I, th- I think being efficient with your warm up is definitely a good idea. Um, I tell you what, Mike, I'm going to dive in and do a couple quick ones here and then give it back to you. Uh, One that I have to address. I made a post on our Instagram page at Mass Research Review the other day that got a lot of chatter and I still need to go through and and respond to a bunch of the comments. It's been, uh, Mike, you know how it is getting to the end of the semester, like right before winter break, a lot of stuff to do. Uh, but but I'll dive back in there and fight with everybody and all that stuff. That's what Instagram's for. But I posted a question, true or false, you should stop having caffeine six hours before bed to maintain sleep quality. Now, a lot of people thought the answer was true, and I think that's totally reasonable. Uh, the reason that they think that's true is because it's a really common misconception that stems from an a misinterpretation of a 2013 study. So there was the study by Drake and colleagues that gave people 400 milligrams of caffeine either right before bed, three hours before bed, or six hours before bed. And they're trying to figure out if the timing mattered in terms of, you know, potential negative effects on sleep quality and sleep duration. Basically what they found was in all three cases, not very good. Uh, so, you know, compared to the alternative of not having caffeine, whether they were having it right before bed, three hours or six hours before bed, there was noticeable sleep impairment in all of those conditions. So a lot of people um, kind of, you know, with research, there's a game of telephone. Someone tells someone about the study who tells someone else about the study. And at the end of that game of telephone, um, basically a lot of people walked away saying, oh, so you want to you want to go, go for six hours as kind of your, your threshold of where you cut off your caffeine intake for the day. In reality, that's not what the study found. They said the, the study found that even at six hours, there was um, noticeable sleep impairment. So the question is, how far before bed do we have to go in terms of cutting off our caffeine? And in my post, I talked about a recent uh, meta-analysis and meta-regression by Gardner and colleagues And uh, what they found was that, you know, unsurprisingly, in their analysis, caffeine ingestion 
uh, did reduce total sleep time by about 45 minutes, which is pretty substantial, reduced sleep efficiency by about 7%, uh, increased uh, sleep onset latency by about nine minutes. Um, so, so there were noticeable uh, negative effects on sleep with caffeine in general, but they looked at this timing question and ultimately determined that when you need to stop consuming caffeine in the day is going to depend on the dose, right? So if you're doing a high dose and the one that they kind of isolated was 217, 218 milligrams of caffeine, they would say you actually probably want to have that 13 hours or more before bed. And I know there's a lot of people who drink a pre-workout supplement before training at 6 p.m. who are not happy about hearing that. Um, If you're going for a more moderate dose of about 107 milligrams, that's like a cup of coffee, basically, you'd want to stop having that uh, about nine hours before bed. So if you're going to have that dose, nine hours or more uh, before bed would be the timing. They did that find that with pretty small doses, things less than 50 milligrams, ultimately didn't really seem to impact sleep too much, uh, essentially regardless of timing. Wouldn't say I'd necessarily try to have 49 milligrams right before bed, uh, but you know what that tells us is you know sometimes people will talk about how there's caffeine in chocolate or you know, even the decaf version of a particular coffee product might have just the tiniest bit of caffeine. Uh, that's certainly not something that you have to worry about uh, in terms of sleep quality. So um, I, I shared this post, and of course, a lot of people who really like caffeine didn't want to hear that, but there were some interesting questions that came up. So uh, one question that came up was, you know, doesn't it kind of vary from person to person? And the answer is absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that can influence how rapidly your body metabolizes caffeine. And that almost certainly is going to impact the question at hand of of how far before bed you need to stop consuming it. So there's genetic factors, there's hormonal factors, uh, even down to like things that you eat, right? So like certain vegetables, um, charred meats can actually impact the rate at which you metabolize caffeine. A lot of different medications can as well. Uh, So that's definitely true. It's going to vary from person to person. An analysis like this is basically trying to find on average what would be the advisable timing. Uh, Another question that came up was, um, what if you have multiple doses throughout the day? Well, you basically have to think at the time that I'm stopping caffeine, what is my effective cumulative dose, right? So you're going to be building up caffeine in your system over time. And that's really what matters. So some people were wondering, well, what if I did a, a bit of a loophole where I have 100 milligrams here and then 100 milligrams two hours later, that two hours later dose is only 100 milligrams, so I can you know, push it later? Not really, right? Because that 100 milligrams you had an hour before, essentially all of that's still in your system. I mean, caffeine has a pretty long half-life, usually five or six hours for most people. Uh, so it's really about the cumulative doses that you're having and when you stop having caffeine completely In proximity to bedtime. Uh, And then another thing, there's another interesting question that came up, uh, but I am missing it. It's it's, uh, eluding me at the moment, but oh, yeah, I'm glad it came to me. Uh, I was worried when I had COVID, I was, my brain was really foggy and I was like, I hope this isn't how my life is going to be from now on. But uh, no, so there's a question about habituation. You know, what if I'm a chronic caffeine uh, consumer? can I just get used to it? And, and will that like kind of make me not have to worry about all this stuff? I would say uh, kind of, right? So if you're a regular caffeine user who's consuming your kind of typical daily dose, 
I do think I, I could imagine that these time windows shift a little bit closer to bedtime. You know, you you probably will experience some degree of, of habituation. If I had to guess, there is some very weak evidence hinting at that, but I don't think it it totally gets you off the hook, right? Maybe it maybe it shifts you from thirteen hours to maybe you can get away with eleven hours before bed for a really high caffeine dose. Um, but a lot of folks who were asking about that were saying, well, you know, I drink a ton of caffeine late at night, and I. I get to bed. And that that's a really huge misconception that I think uh, causes a lot of people to have crappy sleep. The fact that you're able to fall asleep and, you know, stay in bed for a certain number of hours, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're sleeping really well. Uh, so sleep quality matters. And when we look at uh, sleep quality, we can look at different phases of sleep and how much time you spend in each one. We might look at how much time you spend awake in bed from the time you lay down to the time you wake up. Maybe it takes you an extra 10 or 15 minutes to fall asleep, which to you, you wouldn't really notice. It would be kind of negligible, but it is a kind of a marker of impaired sleep quality. And then there's also various metrics of sleep efficiency. So uh, th- that is a really big misconception is a lot of people will say, well, you know, I have plenty of caffeine and I still sleep at night. Well, yeah, you're going to sleep some, but the question is how high quality is that sleep? Um and so that's something to keep in mind. And another thing is some people will say, man, sometimes I have a cup of coffee and I'm asleep within five minutes. Well, that cup of coffee is not really getting into your system that much uh, within that five minute time range. Like there's the idea of doing a caffeine nap, which is where you take caffeine and you try to wake up in, you know, maybe 45 minutes, possibly about an hour or so when you kind of have peak blood caffeine levels. So the fact that, you know, caffeine immediately before bed isn't making it hard to fall asleep for you. Um, you know, that could just be the fact that the caffeine's not really kicking in yet until about a, usually about somewhere between 30 and 60 minutes after. So, uh, I wanted to address some of those caffeine questions. There were a lot of people who were very upset. I've learned in my, my years as someone who studies caffeine, uh, don't come after people's caffeine. They don't like it. They get very, very defensive. And Mike, I tell you what, this has been on my mind lately because uh, I actually am off caffeine entirely. Wow. It's a big change in my life. That is a big change in your life. How much caffeine were you taking per day before you uh, scaled back to nothing? Well, I was a coffee guy. And so I, I don't, you know, I don't have an exact amount, but I mean, it was, it was pretty bad. Like I, I was probably drinking maybe, maybe six to eight cups a day of coffee which is, uh, you know, more, more than you're supposed to. Uh, but, but what I, what I found was that I feel like I was drinking it cause I thought I was tired, but I was really just like bored, you know, <laughs> like I was like, you know, like, you know, I, I, I have a, a, a number of cool jobs. I do fun things throughout the day, but sometimes there's that task you just don't want to do. And I would be like, oh, I'm too sleepy to do this. And it's like, no, you just don't want to do it. <laughs> you, you just feel like it'd be more fun to do it hopped up on a stimulant, you know? Um, yep. And so like, I, I realized that that was probably not a good thing for me. And um, when I had COVID, I, I, my, I, my throat, it was terrible. I like couldn't drink anything for like two days. And so I kind of decided like, I'm through the worst part of not having coffee. Uh, the first two days are usually the worst. So I was like, all right cold turkey let's do it uh, so i didn't really scale back too much at all i just kind of was like you know i, I think uh what, what's going to be really funny is if i find out that all the symptoms i attributed to covid were just me and my caffeine addiction <laughs> just being <laughs> in terrible withdrawal 
But uh, but anyway, yeah, I'm off caffeine, and uh, it's it's been interesting. I actually kind of like it. So. You know, you know, to your to your point about the uh, the study, and um, I'll also say that's impressive, just going from all that caffeine to nothing. Um, to your point about study and and you know sleep quality um, being important rather than just hey did I fall asleep is you know I'm I'm a caffeine guy but I cannot stand the taste of coffee so I don't drink coffee um, but I have caffeine and I have all of my caffeine for the day every morning as soon as I wake up yeah so I wake up really early I go train I have it then and for me that's as of right now it's about three. 20 in the morning. It's very, very early. God, that's um, early. I wake up at four and I hear anything before four. And I'm like, no way. Yeah, it's early. And then so, um, but then I go to sleep each night about eight o'clock. So tonight will be a little bit later because we're doing this. But dude, I fall asleep without issue because I've had no caffeine since then to the point where like my wife is like, do you know what time it is? Yeah. It is, it is 8.15. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, I can't. But then- She's asleep 20 minutes later because, you know, we're old and we have a kid and it's what we do. Um, but uh, yeah, once I started doing that, my I found my sleep quality and I never wake up in the middle of the night. I sleep soundly and then I'm ready to go um, yeah. in the morning. So I, I, at least on my individual level, that has shown through. Yeah. Yeah. My wife is not pleased with me because I, the moment I stop moving at the end of the day, I'm asleep. Like it, it's crazy. So we like, we like, we like watching um, the Great British Baking Show, and I often I'll get like twenty minutes into it, maybe twenty, and I'm out. and And I love it. It's like so peaceful. It's like being gently rocked to bed in a you know, in the most uh, you know peaceful way possible. And so yeah, it's like it's like a lullaby. Yeah, if you can make it all the way through the technical challenge, then maybe you can get the showstopper. But about halfway through the technical, I'm I'm usually out. Yeah, so I fall asleep, and my and my wife has to watch each episode essentially three times because I can watch the first third, then the middle third, and then the end third. That takes me three days. We, but uh, yeah, we could do a whole podcast because we've watched them all as well, talking about the Bake Off. Oh, I love it, man! Um, I tell you what, I want to answer a couple ones really quick. I want to make sure that it, it's nice to have a balance in the show where sometimes we really get into depth and, and cover something with a lot of detail. But then we also uh, pepper in some other topics to make sure we have broad coverage. We want to make sure everybody's happy at home there. So a uh, question that came up, uh, what's the best way to go about tracking female body weight um, because of the menstrual cycle? Um, obviously, throughout the menstrual cycle, there are some hormonal changes that influence body weight. Um, and it, it can be very challenging uh, in that context to try to figure out, you know, am I really gaining weight or losing weight the way I intended? Or am I just watching a change that's related to my menstrual cycle? Um, and the answer is, is I think pretty, uh, I, I can give a brief straightforward answer, which is that it is tricky. Um, but averages are your friend in this case. So, um, we, we have to kind of zoom out a little bit. A lot of times with weight loss, we want to look over the last two weeks or the last three weeks and say, how are things moving? When you have a monthly cyclical change in body weight, you have to kind of zoom out and start comparing um, apples to apples, basically. So if you have a good sense of where you're at in your menstrual cycle, rather than asking yourself, how does that compare to two weeks ago? You really want to ask yourself, how does this compare to the last time I was in this uh, phase of my menstrual cycle? So you want to make sure that you are keep, if possible, um, as long as it's not contraindicated, 
I think it's really helpful to, to weigh yourself in the morning, you know, wake up, use the restroom, get your body weight and kind of document that over time. And you can look at maybe weekly averages and say, you know, kind of look at different phases of your menstrual cycle and you can see, okay, if I look at this phase of my cycle from three cycles ago to two to one to now, you can start to get an idea of the trajectory of your weight loss. And of course, instead of doing a weekly average, you could get into much more complicated smoothing procedures, uh, depending on how much you like mathematics. Um, for most folks, I think just looking at, you know, seven day averages, give or take, and comparing at different parts of the menstrual phase uh, is probably the way to go there. Um, it, it's it does require you to be patient and really zoom out with your interpretation, but I think that's probably the best way to do it. Uh, we had a question from Ali. Should one be concerned if someone's surplus isn't consistent during a massing phase? I find that my hunger varies day to day, so my calories aren't the same daily, but still in check weekly and monthly. Um, I would say that as long as your uh, weekly averages kind of work out, you know, as long as your your weekly average intake uh, tends to be pretty pretty consistent. I think you should be fine. I wouldn't really want to do the type of thing when I'm bulking. If I have a week where I'm eating 4,000 calories and then like two weeks where I'm eating 2,000, like you want to make sure that uh, you're smoothing things out over the course of the week. I think that's a time frame that just intuitively kind of feels right to me because at a certain point, you know, you're you're not bulking anymore. If your average caloric intake over the three week over the last two weeks or one week is low, right? You're at that point, you're doing some kind of non-linear seesaw back and forth thing where you do a week of bulking, a week of cutting, which isn't really my kind of thing. So I would say um, if you have a day or two here or there throughout the week where you don't have much of an appetite, your calories drop a little bit, I don't think that would impact your, your progress at all. I mean, at the end of the day, the 24-hour period is pretty arbitrary in terms of physiology in this context. I mean, if you're talking about circadian biology, it's like critically important. But when we're talking about, you know, energy balance, you know, there, there's no reason that we break our calorie counting down into daily units. We, we could go hourly if we wanted to. And then you'd look and say, well, I'm in a surplus, you know, right after this meal. But by the time I get to the next one, I'm actually in a short-term deficit, right? So the the day-to-day -day thing is is kind of arbitrary in nature. And I would say, as long as you're you're kind of keeping an eye on your average caloric intake for the week, I think you should be good to go, and I wouldn't really worry about uh, little little differences between uh, you know day to day fluctuations. Uh, Mike, I'm going to do one more quick one, and then I'm going to toss it to you after I check in on our folks in the live chat who are who are doing the good work in there. Um, last one I want to do very briefly. We got one about non nutritive sweeteners. Um, bonus points actually for the use of. of a word that isn't artificial sweeteners. Uh, that, that's kind of the nuanced way to do it. So a lot of times people ask about artificial sweeteners, but they'll want to lump in things like stevia. And stevia is not an artificial sweetener. It's a, a very low calorie sweetener. Sometimes you could call it a non-nutritive sweetener. But, uh, but yeah, so when we're talking about non-nutritive sweeteners or extremely low or zero calorie sweeteners or artificial sweeteners, we get a lot of questions, right? Are they going to cause cancer? Are they going to cause obesity? Are they going to cause weight gain? In this case, the question is about insulin resistance. Um, and a lot, there's a lot of questions about insulin-related outcomes with these things because it's very intuitive to think, okay, I'm, I'm experiencing something sweet, but I'm not getting the typical kind of load of 
simple uh, carbohydrates that would typically elicit an insulin response, are things going to get out of whack there in a way that would be physiologically disadvantageous? Um, now, in terms of insulin resistance, what we're really talking about there is long term. Are, are, are you going to have meaningful changes in glycemic control? And fortunately, the answer appears to be no. Uh, so with, with artificial sweeteners or non-nutritive sweeteners, I always have to give a caveat that each one of them, you know, stevia and aspartame and sucralose, these are not similar compounds uh, in terms of their structure. Uh, you know, th these are very, very, very different, uh, you know, structures and compounds. So when we look at a study on sucralose, we really shouldn't be able, we shouldn't expect to be able to generalize that to aspartame or stevia or vice versa. So when we look at this research, unfortunately, it's tedious, but we really have to go by individual sweetener because these are very, very different compounds and the results for one should not really, we, we have no reason to believe it would generalize to all the others. Um, that would be a really, um, a really, um, th there's not much of a basis for making that, that argument or, or that assumption. So anyway, when we're talking about non-nutritive sweeteners, do they mess up uh, glycemic control? Do they cause insulin resistance? The answer, like I said previously, appears to be no. Uh, and, and in fact, what we see is if someone stays weight stable and the only thing they do is they add some diet soda to their diet, a little bit of aspartame or sucralose, what we find is essentially no change in their glycemic control, um, insulin resistance, sensitivity, however you want to frame it, uh, everything pretty much stays the same. However, there is research indicating that if you are replacing sugary beverages with artificially sweetened beverages, uh, randomized controlled trials often find that some weight loss occurs uh, and fat loss specifically. And what they do find is in some of those studies, because of fat loss, there's actually an improvement in insulin sensitivity. So insulin resistance goes down, glycemic control is improved. Uh, so all that is to say, you know, if you're staying weight stable, uh, your non-nutritive sweeteners probably aren't really doing anything with regards to your insulin resistance. They tend to be very safe and well tolerated when consumed in, re you know, common doses that, that you're likely to see in, in a human diet, um, a, a modern human diet, because uh, obviously, you know, billion. Uh, you know, 20,000 years ago, you weren't really doing artificial sweeteners, but uh, the, the types of doses that we see in the typical modern human diet, they're very safe, very well tolerated. Um, and yeah, the, the, uh, the, the literature tends to indicate that, you know, if you're staying weight stable and increasing intake of these, they're probably not going to do much at all physiologically. But if you're using it as part of a weight loss program, you might actually experience some favorable changes in insulin resistance. Uh, all right. So those are the ones I wanted to get to quickly. Mike, we need to dive in here. This is not good. Um, someone jumped in here and said, uh, I missed it. I, I think they might have deleted it in, in shame. Oh, no, I found it. Colenso Semple Strength Sisters as a hashtag. So they're kind of pushing back against Trex Nation and Zordos Nation. So we need to keep an eye on that. And you kind of encouraged that earlier. So that's kind of on you, I think. Um I want to dive in here. Got, uh, oh, Mike, you've been in the chat answering stuff. That, that's why you've been ignoring me. I could well, see you, that you were zoning out. You keep talking about this nutrition nonsense, and I'm like, does he think I'm Helms? I'm not sure what he's doing. I also don't appreciate the way you just kind of snubbed my true 
my true mass office hours hosts. And I support that hashtag um, because I want to be here when she takes over. Well, I tell you what, for the listening audience, do you want to, are there any good questions that you've been? Uh, uh, yeah, man. I got one in the chat. Uh, there's, there's one I answered, uh, from Jacob here and, uh, my comments are, are in there. And then I was writing some notes down, uh, while you were, uh, chatting there to a comment from Chris and Chris Holdsworth asked when individualizing and starting to stall, is there a best order to turn rocks or change variables? And then he goes on to say, like volume, then proximity to failure, then frequency, or in another order. So in short, in training, when you stall out, your strength stalls out, or you think that your muscle growth stalls out, it's probably a good idea to change something. But what levers do you pull? And in what order do you pull them? We have all of these training variables. I think this is absolutely a great question. And I'm going to disappoint with my first part of this answer, but I think it's really true. And I'll I'll get back to doing my best to give specifics. But I would say that the magic answer of what you should change, exactly when you should change it, what order should you change it, nobody knows. And we're on programming. It's one of those things where we're all guessing a little bit. And I think that you should listen to a lot of people about programming and take ideas from here and from here and from here. Take the concepts, not necessarily the exact do this exact thing. Take the concepts that exist and then integrate them into practice. The only person I wouldn't listen to is the one that says you should do make exactly this change and then make exactly this change and make exactly this change. And a lot of that comes down to individualization. To me, individualization, I've written this in a couple of mass articles now, and huge credit to my student, Zach Robinson, who's doing some really, really good work on this, is that it to me, it's it's the most pressing training question that we have. Because we see that people respond to different volumes. Sure, there's this general relationship between volume and muscle growth, but we know that some people respond with double, triple the number of sets on a muscle group that somebody else does. Why is that the case? Somebody might be able to do 18 reps at 70% of their 1RM on bench press. Somebody else might be able to do eight. Why is that the case? And we just don't know all of those answers to individualization. So when it comes to which levers to pull in terms of variables and what order when you start to stall... I can't give an exact across the board answer. What I can say though, from some of the notes that I jotted down is to say, well, one, where are your magnitude of each variable or where is the magnitude of each variable in comparison to what the general standard is? For example, if you, you know, we have this recommendation of muscle growth 10 plus sets per week. I think we're moving a bit beyond that now and say, you know, somebody's doing 15-ish sets a week That's for a muscle group. That's a solid number. You're only doing four. Well, then I'd probably change the volume first, right? Yeah. I'd probably do that. Are you training every single set to failure all the time? I'd probably scale back on that. Are you only training a muscle group once a week? That's probably not enough. I'd push that up a little bit. The question becomes, you're doing 15 sets on a muscle group you're training most sets to about a two RIR, taking a couple to failure here and there, and you're training two to three times a week on a muscle group. Now 
we hit all those tenants of training, all those industry benchmarks, if you will. So now where do we go with that? Well, if you have past experience to draw on, you can go ahead and use that. But you can also look at some other indicators saying, are you fatigued a lot? Are you really beat up from this training? If so, then volume might not be the way to go, but probably increasing proximity to failure isn't the way to go. And so you're going to see that these things tend to coincide with each other a little bit. For example, if you were to increase volume, right, you would probably back off a little bit on the proximity to failure because, all right, I was doing 10 sets. Now I'm up to 13 sets, which doesn't sound like a huge change, but that's a 30% increase in volume. So instead of taking everything to a zero to one RAR, I'm going to maybe go back to a one to three RAR with a AMRAP set or a plus set at the end of the week. And you might say, all right, if I do increase volume, that might go along with an increase in frequency because you might need that extra day to get some more volume in. If you were to do that, then I would definitely back off on the proximity to failure. So you're not pushing up all three of those variables at the same time. So it, it's difficult to say if I had that you know, nailed down like a priority, a pecking order, certainly if you're doing a standard amount of volume and you're, you were growing and now your growth has stalled, Sure, I'd probably add some sets, right? If muscle growth is your goal, you're doing you're not doing too much volume, you're doing a standard amount, you were growing, now you've stalled, I'd probably increase sets. When I do that, I might back off on the proximity to failure. If your goal is strength and you've been gaining strength, and then all of a sudden you're kind of plateaued and you're stuck you're not gaining strength and you're using some more moderate loads, I might even back off on the volume and push the load up and take some heavier singles. And then you're probably going to get that benefit of strength. But after you stall the next time, I think that's the key is if you do back off on the volume offer strength and you push the load up, get some heavier singles in there, maybe single out of one RIR twice a week or something on a squat or bench press. The next time you stall, you're probably going to want to back off on that and increase the volume, right? So th there could be a little bit flip-flopping there each time. So I also don't think it's static, the order that you do it in. So I hope, hopefully my answer didn't disappoint. I tried to be honest and give the immediate, hey, I don't think anybody knows, but also give some practical um, tips in there. So hopefully uh, some of those downstream things uh, were helpful. Yeah. And I mean, while we're on the topic, you, you basically just talked in a lot of detail in a very practical way about how to troubleshoot a plateau. And I think um, we probably answered these in reverse order. But uh, there, there is a really good question about plateau, uh, plateaus that, that we had chatted about earlier, Mike, and I think this might be a good time to address it. So Sam asked, is there anything we can say based on research about plateaus? Why does consistently doing the same amount of volume intensity and, and progressive overload seem to stop working periodic, periodically? Uh, do we need to change things uh, for the sake of novelty here? Is there some kind of principle of variation that we need to satisfy? Uh, so the question is, you know, these plateaus, you already answered, uh, what do we do about them in a way, but um, what, what, what's going on here? Uh, what, what is leading to these plateaus um, in your view? It's tough. Uh, I, I think this is a tough question, a tough one to answer. You know, I think there's probably, there's a physiological component and then there's a psychological component of it. Um, you know, from, from the psychological perspective, I think there does tend to be a degree of staleness in training sometimes. Uh, and if we're doing kind of the same thing over and over, we get that. We get a bit of chronic, not acute, but chronic mental fatigue. 
Um, chronic mental fatigue can occur initially kind of independent of the uh, physical uh, uh, decrease in performance, but then that'll probably come along with it a bit later on. You're going through the motions, you're a bit stale, it's going, doing the same things over and over again and so forth. Um, and, you know, you could get a bit of a cumulative fatigue effect as well. Um, you know, looking at potentially, is there some evidence for deloads there kind of on the physiological side of it a little bit? And so I, I think it's a very, very difficult thing to answer. Um, I don't think we have a lot of evidence to suggest and to say, hey, here's exactly why this is going to happen. But what we do have evidence to suggest is even in some of these these studies where some of these like uh, uh, time off and then training against studies that are very short, when you take a week or two off, um, you tend to maintain pretty well your size and strength. Uh, and then you do tend to come out of that sometimes even stronger. And then progress tends to be a bit more rapid from there too for a week or two. So I do think there is something to kind of that training hard for for a bit and taking, you know, maybe it's a deload, maybe it's a full week off, although we all, we don't like to do that, right? Mentally, it's very difficult to do that. Um, but then getting back into it, you're not really going to lose anything and you may get a little bit more rapid growth there as well. Um, for that new stimulus for the body. And so it gets into the concept a little bit, which started to come out a few years ago, which I think is a is a really a really interesting concept is the potential desensitization sensitization and resensitization to volume. And can you use that type of volume cycling to do that? And to to get to the the question of the plateaus and Sam's question a little bit and then the question in the chat, something that I think helps to answer this is, if we look at these really, really high volume studies, so the NS study, which I covered in mass a few months ago and talked about here, the trucks on on uh, office hours, um, Schoenfeld high volume study from some years ago and now, uh, Brigato high volume study, these studies, Abe, these studies that are using 30, 40, 50 sets per week, we tend to see pretty good growth in those studies. But the reason I think we see good growth in those studies isn't just because it's high volume. It's because these people were doing maybe half that volume before they started the training program. So they're potentially breaking through that plateau in a sense, even if they weren't plateaued before the study. It's such a change in what they were doing. They're seeing that progress. If they were to continue to do that volume for 15 more weeks after the study, I'd be willing to bet most of them not only wouldn't wouldn't gain more strength, wouldn't grow, but they'd probably stall or have a little bit of a decline there. I'm doing my pantomiming again, as you like to talk about on, on some episodes for those listening uh, on the podcast form. But um, so I think that's why we see that benefit in those really high volume studies. I think it's kind of like a breaking through a plateau, but I don't think, I think they would see another plateau and then maybe start to regress a little bit. So they would need to then change something else. Um, so I don't think that type of volume is sustainable for the long term, in my opinion. So again, there's a lot there. I can't give an exact answer physiologically to Sam's question, uh, but I do think it's multifaceted. Yeah. I, I think to me, um, I agree with everything that you said. And I think the question you answered before that gives good guidance about how you actually practically troubleshoot a plateau and try to push through it. But when I think about plateaus, I think about three kind of main categories or bins. Um, so one could be that you simply have an insufficient stimulus, right? You're kind of going through the motions with your training. Um, your overload is no longer progressive in nature. You know, you're kind of going through doing your set routine, not really pushing the loads of the reps. 
And, you know, to me, I think about like, uh, I used to dabble in guitar and, uh, when I would, you know, when I would put it down for a year, pick it up for a few months, you pick it back up, you build up those calluses on your finger again, but it's not like your fingers are going to become completely consumed top to bottom and like, you know, absolutely mangled with calluses. You just get enough callus to kind of cover the tip of your finger because that's what the stimulus is, right? It's like, it's not, you're not going to build that callus bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger in perpetuity. Uh, that would be really weird and not good. Um, so the stimulus is, is pretty mild. And so you build up a little callus and that's it. And, and you know, that stimulus no longer is sufficient to, to cause more and more callus growth. Um, it's about as deep into dermatology as we'll be getting in this episode. But the idea is, you know, if you're going through the motions, doing the same thing every day, uh, week after week after week, at a certain point, um, there, there's really not a, a stimulus that is going to be progressive in nature. There's going to be no additional adaptation that would really be prompted by this uh, stimulus anymore once you've adapted to it. Uh, so in some cases, people that are at a plateau, it's not that they need to mix things up because of some magic element of novelty for its own sake, but it's that, okay, you've been doing a program, you've adapted to that program, which is the whole point of training is to cause training adaptations. But now we need to move some of these variables to actually make this progressive in nature. Now, on the other hand, there are sometimes cases where people uh, are plateaued because of insufficient recovery. Um, it's probably not as common, but it does happen. It, it's not super rare. Um, and so a, a really good indicator there is not just that you're plateaued and you're not making progress, but you feel like crap, you're beat up. You know, you can kind of find those telltale signs that you've been pushing it pretty hard. You're probably not recovering enough. And a good, a, a nice thing about if you think your plateaus because of insufficient recovery, there's a really easy way to test that. Take a week or two off, get back in the gym. If you feel like a million bucks and you're stronger, yeah, you you are probably in a bit of a recovery deficit there, and that should inform your next block of training. You need to change some variables to make it a little bit more appropriate for your recovery capacity. And then the third bin that I put things in would be, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, however you like to view it. Training adaptations over a lifting career, whether we're looking at gains in muscle, gains in strength, they tend to follow a logarithmic curve, meaning that you get your beginner gains and the slope is, you know, a rocket to the moon. You, you are just getting tremendously rapid gains and everything's going great. And then it slows down a little bit over time. And then when you get toward the end of your lifting career, if you've been lifting hard and, and been lifting smartly for 25 years, um, you're going to have to fight tooth and nail to make to make new PRs and to gain a significant amount of muscle mass. You know, once we've been doing this for a while and doing it intelligently and doing it with a high level of effort, uh, you know, those gains slow down big time. And there will be folks who are, you know, if they've been doing it for decades at a high level, they're going to be at about their peak in terms of what they're capable of. And they're going to have to you know, really get creative. And, and the, I've talked on a previous episode uh, with Helms about this, I think. But, you know, you have to turn some some rocks over, try some different training strategies to see if you can kind of unlock those little tiny incremental gains um, that, that might be accessible at the end of a training career or, you know, in the, the very advanced stages of a training career. Now, that is the type of plateau that is far less common. A lot of folks never really get to that point where they are truly flirting with their their genetic limits, their absolute limits for physical capacity to build muscle or, or build strength. So most likely 
most commonly people are just, they don't have a sufficient stimulus or they don't have sufficient recovery. Um, but yeah, whatever the reason, when you're thinking about what do I do, you listen to uh, Mike's advice about how you adjust some of those training variables and and you keep pushing on. You try to see if you can unlock some new gains and then you do it again and again and again. And all of a sudden, hey, you're 85 years old and you've been doing it for six decades, right? All right. Um, now, Mike, there was a question in the live chat and I can't stress this enough. The live chat is where it's at. Um, if, you, if you're listening on... Uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or catching the replay on YouTube, you missed out. But the good news is it's every Wednesday, folks. So you have opportunities to join us live. Uh, so Joel asked, is there any benefit to biasing your daily energy intake to periods after resistance training? You know, so uh, if you train right before bed, would it be better to eat a larger post-workout meal over just a shake? The answer is in most cases, not really. Um, you know, what we want to do is make sure we're getting at least, you know, at least two or three protein servings throughout the day. Ideally, your workout will happen near one of those, um, in between a couple of them, if you can, but no big deal. If, if you had three, you know, solid servings of protein and your workout came shortly after the third, you're fine. Um, carbohydrate is the other consideration. If you are doing really glycogen depleting exercise with the same muscle group, you know, you're doing it tonight and then you're going to be doing it again within the next 24 hours, then yeah, you want to make sure you're getting some good post-workout carbohydrate to accelerate the process of refilling those glycogen stores. For the, for probably 98, 99% of people listening to this, that's probably not the case. Um, you know, you have to do a fairly high volume of, you know, reasonably intense exercise uh, with a very high level of frequency for that to start mattering. Um, and of course there's, you know, it, you, you could also be doing a tremendous volume of moderate intensity exercise as well, where you would need to, to focus on replacing that glycogen. But the, the general idea is for most folks, most fitness applications, you really don't have to worry about it. You can allocate those calories where you like. And I would also argue that really big meal before bed could actually backfire. Um, so it's not like I'm giving you a pass to have that protein shake and you're, you're missing some gains there. It actually could backfire in the sense that having a really big meal right before bed can sometimes reduce sleep quality, uh, especially if it's if there's a lot of fat content or if it's a very spicy meal. If you have that within a couple hours of bed, research would indicate that it could uh, threaten your sleep quality. And there is one more in here. Ooh, someone asked about the books behind me. Um, which of the books do I recommend to the curious layperson? Um I would say Dao De Ching uh, or Dao De Jing. I've, I've heard it pronounced many ways. It's a fascinating book. Very easy read. It kind of uh, lays the foundation of Taoism and it's, it's very perplexing. You can wrestle with that book for a long time. It's like a series of these tiny little pieces of advice that are written as riddles and some of them I, I genuinely don't understand yet. But uh, if you're looking for something to expand your mind and make you really think, that's the book I'd recommend. Um, and the one I have here, uh, actually has some very beautiful illustrations in, the, in it. So, uh, I, you know, Mike, you know, me, when it comes to books, my main criteria is which one has the best pictures. You know, I don't read a book that doesn't have pictures in it. I can't, I can't fault you for that. Um, I spent a lot of time the last eight years looking at books with a lot of pictures in them. Um, you know, so is, I, is I, that related to the, um, 
birth of your child or is that just a coincidence? Oh, no, he's eight, but I, no, I just like picture books. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can, can I, if somebody wants me to sh- share my favorite picture book authors, I could, I could do that too. Maybe that's for another time. Um, Actually, I, I am going to, my wife and I need to buy a, a book for a, a one and a half year old soon. So I'm, I might have to catch you offline and get some, some recommendations. Not, no problem. If you lived here, I have a whole library of yeah. books to read to a one and a half year old that I would give you for this purpose. But anytime you need gifts for uh, uh, friends, kids, nieces, nephews, whoever that's out there, you let me know. I'm on it. See, I just tell them, give the kid an iPad and some noise canceling headphones, get out of there, check back in every couple of days, you know, make sure there's some food around. I don't know why they're bothering with all these books. It seems like a lot of work. It's a great point. I, 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 we must have gone wrong somewhere with this, with the uh, with the other stimulus and the interaction. Um, you know, teaching him to read early and doing those things. I, I mean, you know what? I, I, I'm gonna when we get off, my wife and I are gonna chat. We're gonna reconfigure how we go about these things because I think you've nailed it right there. Well, like they say that it's really good for a kid when they're growing up to have a lot of words directed at them. It's good to have that stimulus. It helps them build a vocabulary and build that interaction. But imagine if your baby, you know, as early as possible, you throw some headphones on, put on like a six hour episode of the Joe Rogan podcast on double time, you know, twice as fast as normal. Think of all the words entering that child's mind and think about scaling that day after day. It's not advice because I don't have children. I don't think I'm qualified for that, but it's just an interesting thought experiment, Mike. Um, it, it is a lot of words. It's a lot of words and some it's of them of mean words. something. Uh, some of them. Yeah. All right, Mike, uh, another question here. I probably maybe our last one for the night. Okay. Um, and this one's right in your wheelhouse. So you could go for an hour on this. I would say nope. maybe 10 minutes would be good. If, I, told if you you what, I told you what time to wake up, so I'm not going for an hour. Yeah. So uh, the question is, do you have any recommendations for learning how to reliably gauge RPE? Uh, I've seen a lot of content about why RPE can be useful, um, but haven't seen a lot about the nuts and bolts of kind of how to learn RPE if you're not used to using it. So let's start here at the basics. And my answer is yes, I do. Uh, but let's start here at the basics with RPE and what the data say on improving your ability to use RPE. So when we think of RPE, right, um, we think of it in terms of repetitions and reserve. And so for for simplicity here, I'm going to use the term repetitions and reserve. RPE and repetitions and reserve are interchangeable if using the RAR-based RPE scale that Mike T originally created then came into the literature with our paper in 2016, and then Hackett worked on a few years before that. If you're using RPE in the context, which I know this individual is not, um, in terms of the traditional usage of RPE, uh, effort-based RPE on the Borg scale that came out in the 70s, and then the modified Borg scale after that, which for, for everybody that's interested in, in, you know, in what mass does and so forth, this is how we think of RPE in terms of repetitions and reserve. But 98% of exercise science research does not use RPE in that manner. It only uses it in the manner of effort base. In fact, when I submitted our original RPE scale paper in 2016, it was rejected from the first journal. And uh, the comments I got were crushing. They thought it was terrible. 
and they said that it was, quote, incomprehensible to wow. combine RPE and repetitions and reserve in the same scale together. Um, after I got over my fit of rage, um, I which lasted a little while, um, I typed out emails that I never sent, you know, and yeah. did that thing, and then uh, submitted to another journal, and here we are uh, these years later. Um, but we use it differently. So in terms of repetitions in reserve, right? Zero being no more reps, one, one more, two, two more, three, three more, and so forth. The, the, the premise here, which I do agree with, but the premise here is that you can improve at this. You can get better at rating or predicting the number of repetitions in reserve um, over time. And as much as that concept makes sense, just as warming up to prevent injury makes sense, there's not a whole lot of data to support it. There are two longitudinal studies now, to my knowledge, looking at the change in RPE accuracy or RIR accuracy over time. One of them I reviewed in mass. The other is by my PhD student in our lab, Jacob Remert, who did a phenomenal job. And neither of those show that over, let's say, eight weeks or so of training, that RIR accuracy, intraset RIR accuracy improves. Now, there's also a meta-analysis um, from Steele and colleagues, or from Halpern and colleagues, I believe, actually. And in that meta-analysis, one of the moderators they looked at of RIR accuracy was experience. And experience, either experience with RIR or training experience, did not modify um, the RIR accuracy. But I still think and I still maintain that you can improve this. So I'll postulate why I think somebody can improve it, and then I'll directly answer the question and say, here's how I would practice it to get that gauge over time to improve it. And I think despite that data is if we take the two longitudinal studies, the Remert study and then the other author uh, is escaping me exactly who that was at the moment, but I did review that paper in mass. It's these populations, when they're looking at this over time, having individuals rate RAR in the first week during a set train and then rate it again and looking at that change. Although in Jake's paper, Jake Remmer, he had them do it every um, session so we could look at kind of the time course. They're already pretty well trained. And when you're already pretty well trained, your RAR accuracy tends to be pretty good. When you're predicting, RAR is, is better under certain conditions. When you're predicting it close to failure in a lower rep set, and set and on later sets. So if you're predicting RIR on the third set um, and you're predicting it after rep six, when you're doing eight reps, you're going to be very accurate. And so if these individuals are already well-trained and are already predicting RIR under those conditions in week one, well, their RIR accuracy is going to be maybe within one rep. And so by eight uh, week eight, they don't really have a lot of room to improve. And so I think that's one reason why the literature hasn't picked up on it. And when you look at the Halpern meta-analysis and the regression that they did, the, the RER experience is pretty, pretty tight in terms of the, the experience that they had. There weren't a lot of people with no experience and a lot of people with 15 years of experience. It was all pretty tight. So we didn't really see that relationship. In cross-sectional data that exists, which is just comparing, let's say in this case, 
what we'd say novices to experienced individuals. So there's a study from Ormsby, the uh, great Mike Ormsby, fantastic nutrition researcher and mentor of mine, and a study from our lab, our original paper. And in Ormsby, they looked at a cross-sectional bench press study and ours, the squat, looking at uh, RAR at, let's say, 70% of 1RM in um, novice individuals that had less than six months of experience and then trained individuals with had about average five years of experience. There was a difference in the RAR that they predicted at 70% of 1RM in both of those studies in that cross-sectional design. So while that's not longitudinal and we can't say it changes over time, when you compare five years of experience versus less than six months and you see this difference, it's enough to say, hey, there might be something going on here. And so because in the Remert study and the Halpern meta, those individuals all had kind of a close training age and close RER experience. Now, when we compare in the cross-sectional data, I do think you can improve it. But I think that's why it hasn't been shown in those longitudinal studies so far. Okay. With that out of the way, the the question in terms of you know, any ways, any strategies to improve RERCSI or to gauge it consistently and effectively over time is if you aren't training to to failure, I would throw in a failure set um, every once in a while, or maybe on the the last set, uh, what I would call plus set or an AMRAP set of whatever exercise you're doing for that week, especially um, may cause a little bit more fatigue. But if you train on Friday, you train again on Monday, you have enough time off, you're good to go. What I would do is I would predict your RIR at different points during the set. Um, if you're going to do, let's say, uh, uh, you know, a set you end up getting about 10 reps, maybe predict it after two reps, after five reps, and after seven reps. That way you'll also get a gauge at how good you are at predicting it at different points during the set. And what you'll probably find is that you're better at predicting it when you're closer to failure. So then you'll utilize it when you're on lower rep sets and you're closer to failure. But I would also predict it during non-failure sets. The reason being is if you your your state of excitement and and just kind of arousal and like how how ready you are for that set is somewhat dependent on what you know you have to do. And if you know I'm going to failure, you might turn that music up a little louder, get a little bit more excited for the set. If you know you're training to a three RAR, um, whatever it might be, you might not be uh, as excited for that set. So I would utilize it on both. And that way you can kind of get a gauge of how each of those feels, right? But the bottom line is you're going to have to train to failure some because that's called, quote, anchoring the scale. You can't know what a two RAR feels like until you know what a zero RAR feels like. The other thing you can do is if you have a coach and that coach, that individual is coaching you online and you send that individual your videos, you can ask them to rate it. And there is data on this as well from Halpern, which I reviewed in Mass 2. And ask them to rate it, ask yourself to rate it, and then take the set to failure and kind of match them up as well. So I do think that it is important for anchoring the scale to take some sets to failure sometimes, see how it goes. If you're way off, then you probably don't want to use RAR as a prescription method, right? You probably don't want to say, hey, I'm going to choose a load that after eight reps, I think I'm going to land at a two to four RAR. And how accurate you need to be, I think, is also another question. I have an article on Mass titled something to the effect of how accurate do your RAR ratings need to be? 
because one of the knocks on it is that it's subjective and that is a very legitimate knock on um, using RIR based training. But I also think it's important to note that your RIR doesn't need to be perfect. If you're training a single on squat, getting ready for powerlifting meet to a one RIR, then yes, I do think it needs to be very, very accurate. But if you're utilizing a hypertrophy block and you're doing really high volumes and you just want to stay between a two and a four RIR, the only purpose of it there is to say, I generally want to be shy of failure. If you're not dead on the money, it doesn't really matter. So the way you can improve it is probably by doing some sets to failure, predicting it at different points during the set, seeing where you're most accurate when you improve, which is probably going to be predicting it when you're close to failure. Those are the circumstances where you really, really need to be accurate in. As long as you can be reasonably accurate when you're farther from failure, then you could probably use it during higher volume sets that are farther from failure without issue. Yeah, I, I think that's perfect. And yeah, the, the takeaways there is you, you got to work with it, right? So like you said, you, when you're doing a set, if you're planning to do 10, do your first couple reps and say, how many do I think I have left? You know, maybe eight, right? Do a few more reps when you're at, after you finish the fifth. How many more do I think I have? Maybe five. The big thing there is make sure that you're not creating a self-fulfilling prophecy and just doing the exact number. Like you have to actually go to failure that set and see, oh, wow, I underestimated. I thought I'd do 10, but I actually did 13, right? And that that's where you really learn from that exercise. But like you said, RIR, you don't need to be perfect with it. I mean, from the coaching perspective, you know, when I'm creating a program for someone that I'm coaching virtually, I don't have the benefit of being in the gym with them, right? And so the programming has to be on the spreadsheet. Sometimes reducing the RIR prescription is really nothing more than a suggestion of, hey, let's push it a little more than we did last week, right? Maybe go and grab the the slightly heavier dumbbell or maybe try to do a couple extra reps. It's kind of a, a suggestion, a nudge. We're still not going to failure yet because the RIR changed from maybe four to two, but the idea is let, let's kick it up a notch. Let, let's kind of tap into another gear here, but still, you know, still remain shy of failure. Um, all right. I think that probably does it for this episode. Uh, one thing that I forgot to mention during the episode is if you like, if you're listening to the episode, if you're viewing it on YouTube, then it's, it can't be that bad, right? You're here. You listen for more than five seconds. So what I would encourage you to do is like the video when you uh, stop by and watch it, because that helps us out a lot. And the number of viewers, unfortunately, Mike, is greater than the number of likes. And I refuse to believe that's because people disliked the experience. I think everyone liked it. They just simply forgot to like the video with the little, uh, what does it look like? A little thumbs up icon. Yeah, it's just a little thumbs up there. So just hit that and that'll help us out big time. Um, but thanks to everyone for viewing. We really appreciate it. Um, like, rate, subscribe, all that stuff. Share it with a friend. Ooh, if you're traveling for the holidays this week, bring everybody around Christmas night. Um, put this on and, and let everyone kind of enjoy that experience with you. That could be kind of, if you forgot to buy a gift for people, you can say, hey, I'm going to share this with you and, you know, it's going to be part of your life now as well. So that, that's a nice gift idea. Um, now, people have been asking, what are we doing next week? So a week from today is going to be December 27th. Uh, I am going to be out of town. The mass team is going to be doing holiday stuff, winter break stuff. So uh, we will not have a live episode a week from tonight, but we will have an episode. Uh, obviously everyone on mass office hours, we're all, uh, members of the mass team, the mass research review 
Every month, we put out a bunch of articles and videos covering the newest and most practical research and exercise and nutrition and some related topics. So a lot of folks listen to Office Hours, but they've never been a subscriber to Mass. And they might be wondering, well, those videos you talk about, what are those actually like? So if you've never been subscribed to Mass, next week we are going to make one of our Mass videos from a previous issue publicly available. It's going to be a fantastic video by Dr. Eric Helms, and it'll basically serve as a little peek into what it looks like as a Mass subscriber to get uh, you know one or two videos every month on top of all of the written articles. So um, if you are subscribed, and you definitely should be, uh, I assume you'll get a little notification when that goes up. Uh, try to get it up on Wednesday, but it's going to be a pre-recorded video by Dr. Helms. Uh, we've already got the video picked out. It's a fantastic one. It's from, I think, a few issues ago. Um, time flies. is maybe, yeah, it, it's a fairly recent one. It, it came out within this past year, and it's really, really informative, very practical, very useful. So, uh, I hope that you will enjoy that, and then we'll be back to our live episodes one week after that. Uh, Helms, anything? Or Helms, Zordos, anything to say to the nice people before we sign off? I thought next week was going to be a live episode where I come on and I unbox uh, all the Christmas presents. That, that that is a popular genre on YouTube. I, I know. I I'm just learning about this, and I, I I don't know why we didn't have our son start doing this. Uh, he would have been very you know, more popular if he started early. Well, you you uh, could also be retired if you had done that. <laughs> that's what I'll say. And uh, so, no, that's it. I, I just want to say uh, a very sincere thank you to everybody for for uh, uh, for coming here. Um, you know, every time Trex says, you know, I want to get to the people in the live chat. You know, that's what's most important. That's what I said this to Lauren last time. You remind me of the last time I saw Metallica Live where James Hetfield was like, you can buy the CD, you can buy the T-shirt, but coming to the show, you know, shows you're you're a true fan. So um, you didn't do quite the grumble that James does, but uh, you you did, you did remind me of him there. And so uh, I just want to say thanks for coming and happy holidays, happy new year to everyone. Have a phenomenal time and, and, and week here, a couple of weeks here, uh, enjoying the holiday season. Yeah, I echo that. Uh, happy holidays, happy new year, and we will be back. Wow, I guess we will be back with our next live episode in 2024. So uh, everyone get your New Year's resolutions all planned, and uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks.